Do the trashy pulp novels of the world have anything to offer? Our bestseller is all they're cracked up to be. Here at Terrible Book Club, we explore whether you really can judge a book by its cover or its ridiculous synopsis. You ever passed a book and thought, ugh, who's reading this? We probably are. Welcome to episode 121 of the Terrible Book Club. I'm Paris, and this is Chris. Hello. This time, we read Rush Revere and the Brave Pilgrims, published in 2013 by Simon & Schuster, and written by none other than fucking Rush Limbaugh. We read this at the behest of our patron, Martin. Thanks so much for your support, Martin. Uh, He's been listening to and supporting TBC for a long time, and we... Really appreciate him. Yay. Hooray, Martin. Hooray. Hooray. Uh, in Hooray. fact, <laughs> in fact, if you are listening to this episode, which uh, I guess you would have to be to hear this. So that was a really stupid and pointless preamble. Um, Martin. If you have Car- summoned this episode into your brain. <laughs> I don't know, just man. Just by maybe. habit that you walked through the wrong aether cloud and it just fell into your whole. You know, we have we have talked about like the future of media and how maybe someday you'll snort podcasts. I don't know. Uh, But anyway, um, Martin, our our beloved patron who asked us to read this, he encourages you to donate what you can to an LGBTQIA plus organization near you in memory of Rush Limbaugh's lifelong campaign of hate. Um, alternatively, you can send some direct mutual aid to someone in need in your area. Uh, honestly, I, I kind of want to say you can sort of donate to almost anything to spite Rush Limbaugh because he kind of hated everybody. Is the phrase <laughs> in memory of appropriate there? In memory against, right? Is, <laughs> yeah, I think in spite, in spiteful memory of. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess the point being. Fuck Rush Limbaugh, uh, and remember no, to uh, support any of the people that he hated, which is most people. Yeah, that's a wide net, turns out. Yeah, you if have you're, to if look you're not hard. A, if you're not a straight white American conservative man, Rush Limbaugh hated you. So if you if you fall into a very large net, this message is for you. Um, if you're not sure uh, where to donate or what to do, uh, we'll put some recommendations in the show description for you if you're not. Uh, if you're not sure, this is a reminder to future Paris to uh, to do that. <laughs> um, if this is your first time listening to the show, what we do here at the Terrible Book Club is we read books that we assume will be bad based on their cover, title, summary, or some combination of the three. And we've never had author has author been part of that before. <laughs> uh, no, I think whenever we've had an author like a controversial author that we thought was bad like today. I feel like those have all been patron requests. I, I don't know. I guess I guess maybe not because the Mueller... if I saw this book on a shelf, I would see the author name and immediately <laughs> go, "Oh, that's probably shit." Anyway, 
Uh, sometimes, like today, we read books that our patrons, listeners, or friends recommend. So we don't always choose the books each time, like today, when Martin chose this book. Uh, but typically, we do the opposite of what most people do in a bookstore or while they're browsing the internet looking for something to read. Usually, our experiment results in a disappointing read, but once in a while, we do actually end up liking the book and find ourselves pleasantly surprised. Uh, content warnings for today. So, in addition to our usual barnyard language, today's episode includes discussion of genocide, misogyny, racism, and uh, some anti-queer LGBTQIA plus rhetoric. Uh, oh, also some drug use. I just remembered that. That is now out yep. of alphabetical order, and I will forever hate myself for that. Moving on. Harris, wait, hold, hold. you've been alphabetizing the content warnings? Yes. Paris, I, th- <laughs> I think I might need, like, you need help for I, at this point. You, if your you know, organizational madness is to the point where you're alphabetizing <laughs> the content warnings, yeah, so there must um, be some kind of program I can put you in. Th- yeah, this is a sidebar, but, like, I really, the last, like, two year, two, three years, I've really started to think that I have, I got something. <laughs> there is something... My brain doesn't work like a lot of other people's brains, so I don't know. Um, I definitely got Paris, something that going is on. Wholly unnecessary. <laughs> it um, it keeps I have me organized. Never the content <laughs> warning list. Did you never notice that when I did them? Well, uh, I, I've always fixed them. Oh my god! <laughs> so here's the thing: is if I think about anything not being alphabetized or ordered, it makes me anxious. Like, my heart rate will start going up. This is my life. Okay, well, maybe you could have told me and I would have tried to alphabetize it to prevent that, but I also would have been like, what the fuck do you want me to do? <laughs> but I still yeah. would have tried to help. Yeah. Um, okay, anyway, well, so we gotta, we gotta get me to a doctor, but moving on, that's for another <laughs> Messy day. Messy doctor. <laughs> You walk in his office and it's just everything. Everything is everywhere. The vaccines are in the fucking uh, clipboard cabinet. I'm not kidding. Like, this organization actually makes me, like, nervous and anxious. I hate it. Anyway. Well, I'm sure this completely organized view of history was great for you. (laughs) Yeah, it was real good. Um, Okay, so this is what's printed on the back of the book. Chris is going to take us away. From America's number one radio talk show host and multi-million copy number one New York Times bestselling author, a book for young (laughs) readers with a history teacher who travels back in time to head adventures with exceptional Americans. Meet Rush Limbaugh's really good pal, Rush Revere. That's in all caps, why I'm shouting. Okay, okay, my name's really Rusty, but my friends call me Rush, Rush Revere, because I've always been the number one fan of the coolest colonial dude ever, Paul Revere. Talk about a rock star. This guy wanted to protect young America so badly, he rode through those bumpy, cobblestony streets shouting, The British are coming on a horse. Top of his lungs. Wind blowing, rain streaming. Well, you get the picture. But what if you could get the real picture? But actually going back in time and seeing with your own eyes how our great country came to be, meeting the people who made it all happen, people like you and me, Hold on to your pointy triangle hats because you can, with me, Rush Revere, seemingly ordinary substitute history teacher, as your tour guide across time. How, you ask? Well, there's this portal and a horse 
my talking horse named Liberty, and, well, just trust me, I'll get us there. We'll begin by joining a shipload of brave families journeying on the Mayflower in 1620. Yawn, I don't think so. 1620 was a pretty awesome time, and you'll experience exactly what they did on that rough, dangerous ocean crossing. Together, we'll ask the pilgrims all our questions, find out how they live, join them at the first Thanksgiving, and much more. So saddle up and let's ride. Our exceptional nation is waiting to be discovered all over again by exceptional young patriots like you. Paris, did you count the, like, ten lies in that summary? Uh, yeah, I, I, well, <laughs> I, I actually only spotted one, um, which I think this is just a function of growing up in Massachusetts my entire life, um, but it's very unlikely that Paul Revere would have shouted, the British are coming. He likely said, the regulars are coming, because... At that time, colonial Americans still considered themselves British. They'd only, you know, they'd only recently kind of. Yeah, <laughs> the us so, are coming. The us are coming. Yeah. So, like, if you think about it, that it's obviously ridiculous. Um, I think, yeah, it's just been, po- I think it was popularized in that, um, that poem that, uh, fuck, who wrote that? Was it Longfellow? I forgot. There's a famous poem that, well, there's the poem that made, Paul Revere famous and in the poem it says the British are coming but a lot of people scholars have said that it, it's likely just because the meter was better for the poem and there's no way he would have said the British are coming because he thought himself British um, Paris, furthermore are you saying like, that perhaps this book has a very shallow look at what happened in history yeah that's a, that's a clue listeners there's already <laughs> a falsehood or you know uh, a misunderstanding in the uh, in that back of the book summary. Um, yeah, I can and give you the, another. Which one? The one where it says, "Join them at the first Thanksgiving and much more." That's where it ends. It ain't much more <laughs> after that. You're right. It does literally end immediately after the first Thanksgiving. After the list of things that he listed there, after that, there's nothing. There's not much more. Yeah. Um. Oh yeah. I was just gonna say it's. You know, Paul Revere was one of many riders and many people who uh, were part of the kind of revolutionary effort. Nothing, you know, no, no shade of Paul Revere. He was like a silversmith and dentist and whatever. He did a lot of stuff. We previously encountered him and Johnny Tremaine. We sure did. Uh, and I encounter him all the time because I live in Boston. Well, we both live in Boston, so he's just everywhere. Um Anyway, you know, no shade to him, but history has definitely, uh, as, as it often does, made uh, made this kind of imbalanced uh, view very popular. That somehow it was all Paul Revere, when really there were several other riders, and they all rode a long time. Actually, Paul Revere got fucking arrested that night. He didn't even like make it yeah. very far. <laughs> anyway, yeah. you can read about that on the internet. Uh, we're gonna talk about. This book from Rush Limbaugh. I can't believe I'm saying that. Okay. Um, Characters and setting here. Actually, Chris, why don't you do this? Because I'm going to read your summary in a moment. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I want to say is the main character is Rush Revere, who I guess, according to the summary, is different from Rush Limbaugh. That's, it's a separate Rush. It's the same fucking... It's Rush Limbaugh. Even it's though Rush. every cursed picture in this book, there are <laughs> cursed pictures in this book. Yeah. You know what this reminded me of? This reminded me of Melanie's Marvelous Measles. Yes, very the, it, much. The the it's very much the same. Uh anyway, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to post some some 
every shot of a character that's in this picture is they only had the face facing one direction. So they use that face that is always pointed towards the camera and never any other angle of it photoshopped onto like a sort of generic cartoon of a guy in a colonial outfit slash the kids in a colonial. Anyway, speaking of what these kids are, you got Rush Revere, the main character slash substitute history teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have two students that he does a lot of time hopping with, Tommy and Freedom. Yes, there is a person named Freedom, much like there is a horse named Liberty, a talking Time travel portal opening horse who's sort of the class clown slash wisecracking character trying to make all these jokes during the whole thing. Also very fond of food as, you know, the easiest way to characterize any animal character that you write into anything just obsessed with food. Um, Then you got the pilgrims, you know, you got notable ones include William Bradford and Miles Standish, but it's that whole crew. You've heard enough about them, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, And then there are... Three natives of importance, I suppose, that pop up in this. There's more than them, but they are the ones that are named and have things that happen. You have Samoset, who was a, I think you say this, Sachem? 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 Sachem. I would say Sachem. A leader. Some, you know, high up figure. Uh, In particular, Samoset was in the Perniquid, Perniquid tribe. Uh, no, uh, he was Abenaki and he was from Pemaquid, like the area called Pemaquid. The the article that I read said Pemaquid was like the tribe and the Abenaki was like a conglomerate of other tribes. Uh, that, that does sound right. I just didn't know the Pemaquid was. Abenaki was like a federation of ways. Yeah, it's kind of like how the, it's kind of like how the Wampanoag also are, are that way. Um, okay, well. There's anyway, that. anyway, there's that. Uh, yeah, native native folks are complicated because there's like people tend to group a bunch of them into one category when they're really a much smaller, yes. different ones. Yeah. Speaking of, you have Massasoit or Massasoit, also a leader, but of the Wampanoag tribe, a tribe I am more familiar with, having learned about them in school, being from Massachusetts. And then you have Tisquantum, as he was really known but also known as squanto in some other writings including this book i'm not sure if that's a nice name for him or not yeah i mean it it was probably chosen by him from what i've read because it basically means like the wrath or something or or i forget it's like kind of a wild name all right yeah uh he was a member of the patuxet tribe and he helped translate um, the English-speaking colonists to other natives in the land because he had spent time in Europe previously. Yeah, after being enslaved, that's an important yes, point. I should <laughs> probably say, yeah, it, he didn't just take a vacation. I should have been very clear about that. <laughs> it's okay. Hey, Chris from the future here with a whole bunch of corrections on a lot of that stuff. Uh, so first of all, Samoset was not a sachem. He was a sagamore which was a leader below a sachem. Perniquid is incorrect. It's actually Pemaquid, which is my fault, or my eye's fault, really, because RN usually looks like M to me, and I'll confuse M and RNs a lot. And anyway, Pemaquid was an area, not a people, within the Abenaki territory, which itself was one of five groups in the Wabanaki Confederacy. Also, Wampanoag wasn't a tribe. It was a confederacy of over 30 other smaller groups, including the Poconoket, of which Massasoit was a part. 
And lastly, Tisquantum meant something like divine rage, although scholars are not 100% in agreement on that, while Squanto was a nickname likely given to him by William Bradford. Gresham Chris from the future, out. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, all of that's roughly fine. Uh, all right, so... In an effort to make these reviews less confusing, in the last year or two, we've been providing summaries, like our summaries of the entire story, and uh, Chris has written our summary today. <clears throat> Rush Revere, aka Rush Limbaugh, is a substitute history teacher who dresses in colonial costume and brings a fucking horse into the classroom. Specifically, a horse named Liberty that can talk, time travel, and turn invisible by holding his breath. He uses his time-traveling horse to bring two students, Tommy and Freedom, back to various stages along the Pilgrim's journey from Europe to America, beginning with their decision to leave England, go to the Netherlands, and then sail across the ocean to America. Whenever the going gets a little rough, Russian crew fuck off back to present times and time travel to the point after it sucked. Everyone back in the 1600s seems a-okay with the guy who keeps disappearing and reappearing and also waves a smartphone around like even beginning to try to explain what the thing does wouldn't result in Rush being burnt at the stake. The whole thing wraps up when Native Americans show up to help the pilgrims out ahead of a harsh winter. They have a feast together and then Rush and crew leave because nothing worthwhile happened after that, right? They were all friends! Yay, America! <laughs> Yay, they were all friendly with each other. Hurry, they did nothing bad happened after that. Don't read about 1623. <laughs> or, Just yeah. Just don't go there. No, don't go to 1623. Mm -mm. Let's show the students that one. <laughs> oh. Okay, kids. I'm putting my time travel cell phone camera on. <sighs> Yeah, so there's a lot wrong with this book. Um, Why don't we start with the things that were good? Why don't we just start with yeah. the good stuff? Yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll let you do this section, Chris. Okay, so here's some stuff that was actually good in this book. Um, it defined some ship and sailing terms, unlike William Hope Hodgson in the Karnacki series. Yeah, like, he actually explains what a poop deck is. I don't have to sit here and ask Ken and sound like an idiot. He explains what a... I forget what all these parts of the ship are and it makes sense and it's very clear. So that was good. Um, what is also good? Uh, the plot is chronological and that's it. Yeah, I don't, I guess the other thing I might, I might add a quick other thing that was good. You know, this wasn't, I mean, I was really scared. Like Rush Limbaugh narrating a children's book. I was like, fuck, this is going to be like, it's going to be intense. And it's definitely bad and definitely has a lot of like problematic parts. But it was at least written in a way that was kind of just your general bland, shitty kind of American history take. It wasn't as like outwardly offensive as Rush Limbaugh was as a person <laughs> on the radio. So like you got to really tone eh. it down when you're specifically marketing it towards grade school children, I suppose. Yeah, I guess so. You want to just get them with the general whitewashing first, so then you can get them mad later when someone tells them, hey, it really wasn't like that. And they're like, but Rush Limbaugh said in the, in the Rush Revere things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. This is the first step in, in that. Yeah, um, instead we just go with like subtle 
uh, untruths and outright lies and misunderstandings and misstatements of history. So, And generally just not being around when things weren't so rosy. Yeah. So the fun thing about having a time-traveling horse is that you can just check in and out and only check in when it's calm and things are very comfortable for uh, white people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, turns out when you can really just cherry pick moments to time travel to and from, you can paint a pretty rosy picture about what was going on in the Americas. Yeah, makes makes history a lot easier when you don't have to tell all of it. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, this this is launching us directly into the things that were not good, like like so many children on time traveling horses through time portals. Um, just just rush, rush, rushing. Okay, so Paris is saying the uh, catchphrase that opens and close, or really just opens the portal between. So if you're going back in time. You got the horse, the specifically the horse, I believe, has to say. No, 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 rush. no. Ru- rush says it. Okay. Well, I guess that makes sense. Well, Rush has to say, Rush, Rush, rushing to history. And then when you're leaving because things suck, <laughs> you say, Rush, Rush, rushing from history. <laughs> So literally, straight up in this book, every time something that they didn't want to be around for was happening, they are screaming into the air, let's run away from history. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's just the most perfect fucking accident. It's just so You don't think you're maybe like writing that down in the book sometimes, like, I think maybe there's a message I'm not intending here, but... (laughs) Well, there was clearly no real fact checking in this book, so or very surface level fact checking against other whitewashed books of history. I I don't know. Um, okay, so yeah, so let's just get right into it. Um, this book does a great job of seeming historical and accurate because it does have some real facts in it, but. Oh, golly, does it really miss important points and certainly distorts history (laughs) in the service of Rush Limbaugh's ideas about capitalism and kind of like American mythos. Um, Chris, Chris, do you want to talk about this and then I'll I'll give you my, my little spin on it? Okay, so, like, you think this is mostly just going to be the, you know, first Thanksgiving tale about colonists coming to the Americas and interacting with Native Americans there, and then they all helped each other out and everything was cool. And that does happen in this book. That whitewashing happens. Mm -hmm. But turns out that's not sort of the main idea that Rush Limbaugh was trying to sell here. (laughs) It seems to mostly be about reading one letter that William Bradford sent that let people know that originally the pilgrims decided to set up a sort of commonwealth system where, you know, able-bodied people farmed the land and produced the food and gained profit for the the colony. Because once again, this was a profit-seeking venture. The colonists had to pay back their debts they incurred by getting, you know, the the money to sail across here in the first place. But anyway, so uh, it started as a commonwealth with the idea that the able-bodied people would work the land, get the food, and then they would then share that amongst the rest of the people in the colony. Um, 
But pretty quickly into it, they decided to switch to a system where each family was individually responsible for growing their own food. And in the letter from William Bradford to, I forget who he was sending it to, but it might have been his journal, actually. Um, he basically says, well, a lot of those men that were working felt it was unfair that the work they did went to the mouths of other women and children besides their own wife and children. And that that was deeply unjust. And therefore we should switch to a system of individual farming so that we may grow and prosper further, but also mostly so I don't have to get mad about Jeremiah's wife eating the grain that I planted, which Rush Limbaugh uses to say, oh, so you see, America was founded on individual property rights from the beginning. <laughs> and therefore, communism bad. Sharing bad. Sharing of any kind bad. It will only lead to people starving in the long run and hardship because the only true way to organize a society is by making every man an island and individually responsible for themselves and their immediate family only. That's the best way to organize things. Yeah, and of course, this is a great example of the um, intentional cherry-picking of history here because um, there's there's a couple things to note here. And, and one of them is that I mean, this is the most notable, but the pilgrims didn't switch over from Commonwealth style to this, like, I don't know, baby capitalism until 1624, which was three years after the fucking first Thanksgiving and the events of the book. So Russia's whole idea that killing socialism gave us prosperity and Thanksgiving is patently false. I, I, there's no other way to put it. I mean, I checked a few different uh, scholarly sources and they all seem to line up. So I don't know whoever they just didn't fact check his book or something. I'm, I'm not really sure what the fuck happened there. I'm pretty sure he just read that one letter and drew all the conclusions from yeah. there. Yeah. And furthermore, like it took them 28 years to pay back the debts of their voyage. And in the book, Rush Limbaugh paints it as like, Oh yeah, they they moved from a commonwealth to a capitalist society and very soon paid off their debts. I don't know about y'all, but like 28 years isn't soon last I no. checked. <laughs> Especially oh. when your life expectancy ain't quite so long back then. Yeah, yeah, it's like 28 years. It's a years. bigger percentage. <laughs> so and I mean that part is like a clear distortion, right? I mean, I don't think anyone would consider 28 years soon in the course of a human life in, you know, 16, the 1620s. I mean, the second step from that is that, so they switched into that model, according to the letter, because the workers felt as if it was unfair to them. This is a cultural thing, right? It's not like legitimately they were all going to 100% starve if they didn't switch to the baby capitalism model. It's that the the main reason was a bunch of dudes were like, I don't think it's fair. Well, it it wasn't really. It, it was sort of that. It was mostly, so th this is something else to consider, is that they didn't switch to unbridled free market modern American capitalism, which is something that is lost on Rush and unfortunately lost on the reader due to his negligence. And And that's why I was saying baby capitalism, because all they really did 
was move the labor from like everyone gets involved voluntarily to each person has a particular lot they have to work. Um, and even then, pilgrims had a really deep sense of community and taking care of their group um, in the service of God. So there's no fucking way that they yeah. would have been cool with like, <laughs> I don't know, let's say one person's farm was producing all the food and everyone else was really having a hard time. There's no way that they wouldn't have shared that one person's stuff. Yeah. Like the, that's the picture... basically the point I was coming around to. Oh yeah, sorry. I sorry, Chris. I didn't no, quite fine. realize that. Um, and and there are even um, there's documentation proving that Bradford and Standish and the other leaders of the community um, were you know they didn't do this as like a celebration of capitalism. They actually changed the system. Um, and they felt it was an unfortunate kind of r relenting to the weakness of the human spirit to be selfish. And they had to do it to survive. So it was actually quite a difficult decision for them because it, it really felt like it went against the rest of their belief system. But they were like, well, we either give in to this bullshit and maybe don't die or we probably mostly starve. <laughs> So, you know, this was a very pragmatic decision by leaders of the time. And again, this is a this is a fucking wacky distortion of history, this whole thing in this book. Yeah, did so, you read at any point something that said every family would be individually responsible for their own food? Because Rush sure harps on that point in this book. Um, so what they did is they were each allotted one acre of land. It I most people agree it was one acre, one parcel, one portion. It was most likely one acre. And for the first couple of years, they were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to switch which parcel you have every year so that it would be fair. But then eventually, I think after like three or four years, they decided, eh, we're not going to do that actually. Cause that was just kind of more of a pain in the butt than they thought it was going to be. Um, but yeah, that, that is what they did. They basically said, Hey, this is your lot. You have, you are responsible for farming it. But that doesn't mean that that food would only go to that one family. They were I just don't responsible think so. for a specific. I, yeah, I believe that is correct uh, from what I remembered. Yeah, it wasn't So like... they were still sharing the food. <laughs> yeah, they had to. I mean, they didn't have a whole lot. Like, there's not a whole lot that could have A, fit and B, survived the journey from England. And so, uh, yeah, they kind of needed all the help still... they could get. Trying to put it into like sort of a communal pot in a way to make sure everyone got fed. Well, I think that I think that it was one of those like, you know, if someone's like, hey, I'm out of corn, you go to your neighbor and they'd be like, oh, yeah, here, have some corn. I, well, I'm I, sorry. Mr. Rush Revere came back in time to tell me that we shouldn't do that. So um, sorry. Yeah, he also Rush Limbaugh in this book also credits himself via his analog Rush Revere with like encouraging them to do this. <laughs> He also um Wait, he because also the paradoxical time loop in which capitalism was sent back in time to start itself. <laughs> Actually, oh god, this is there's so many I could go so many points in the notes based on that comment, but I'm just, you know, I'm just going to stick to the notes. Um the book does interchange pil the phrase the the word pilgrims and the word puritans. Just an FYI, it's a common error, but they're not the same. 
Pilgrims came first in 1620. Puritans came later in 1630. They settled in different places. Puritans founded Boston. Pilgrims were in Plymouth, which is like south of there. So anyway, slightly different. Uh, ended up, you know, having different effects on history. So they're, they're not the same, but they're similar. Uh, notably, Pilgrims called themselves, Pilgrims were separatists and Puritans were typically more uh, like revisionists. So some fucking semantics there, but important. More nuance in that 10 seconds of explanation than anything in this book. I mean, again, <laughs> it is for younger children, but I think we can be, fi- I think we can find ways to even communicate those ideas with children. You can basically say, well, these people wanted to be completely apart from a church and these people just kind of wanted to change a few things. There, well, I did it. Right. And not to mention like, there wasn't even a need to talk about the Puritans because all the events of this book took place in 1620 and 1621. So like, I don't like, there wasn't even a reason it clearly, again, whoever edited this or wrote this with him just didn't do it right. (laughs) So, um, yeah. And sorry, this is kind of an extension of what we were just talking about with how Rush Limbaugh sort of graphs his own modern ideas of, you know, um, what America is and what patriotism and capitalism is and freedom like onto these people in very inaccurate ways. Um, so there's a lot of like, Oh, well the pilgrims came here to be free and like, yeah, they came to North America to, um, be free from religious persecution, but their sense of what like liberty and freedom was, is just totally not what Rush Limbaugh thinks it is and not what we would consider it, at, at, you know, in the modern day. Um, like, for uh, for Pilgrims, liberty and freedom was, was considered, like, a responsibility to do the right things for your group, again, for your community, and to follow God. It was the freedom to follow God and do what was right, a.k.a. what was uh, moral and just and... Um, Christian, essentially. It it was like, it is just absolutely not like doing what you wanted and when you wanted. That was not freedom or liberty to them. That was heathenism, I guess. That, like, There's a paragraph in this book where Rush Revere has a conversation with one of them and is like, well, wouldn't you consider it, you know, bad if someone was telling you what to do like the king was telling you what to do? And I think it's like William Bradford. He's like, yeah, you're right, Rush Revere. I should just make sure that everyone is in charge of their own food. That was like sort of the route that he took to convince William Bradford to like start his capitalism time loop, which I'm not walking away from Paris, by the way. (laughs) I hope you know this. We have to unravel this a little further. Oh, yeah, we're going to get there. We've got some bases to cover here. So, like, so for once in my life, I'm actually demanding more God in a book because (laughs) I just feel like the pilgrims were just so, A, extremely about God, and B, as as a consequence of that, extremely about, like, self-denial. So Yes, literally their whole thing is one guy telling them what to do, submitting to authority. That is, like, their entire thing. Yes, and self-denial is such a big tenet of both the Pilgrims uh, kind of variant of Puritanism and like the Puritans variant. So, to, which is of course, by definition alone, 
purely antithetical to the ideas of personal freedom and doing whatever the fuck you want and killing people because you won't get vaccinated. Sorry, that's top of mind right now. Yes. So it's just, again, this is a major distortion of history that Limbaugh and et et al. is is doing in service to modern ideas. It's just propaganda. It's not history. Um, I mean, and he takes this basically, like I said, from that one historical source of the letter where William Bradford talked about how they changed the model of food distribution. Oh, no, it wasn't. uh, Sorry, I meant to correct you earlier. I I don't. I actually think it's from Bradford's history, like the history that he wrote later in life of their journey and their settlement. Um, I think it's actually from the book that he wrote about the time. So, yeah. And yeah. And but again, it's like if you read more of that and also if you read the other there's like it's uh Bradford's history and then shit there's another one uh my point being is is that this is a classic example of one story from back then kind of supporting your point so you just hold up that one and you never bother to look any deeper or wider or talk about it or bring up anything else that could possibly fuck with that narrative yeah um yeah, so anyway, I would actually I actually feel like there's not enough God in this book. This might be the only time I ever say that because it's just so historically relevant. Like, if you want to understand the pilgrims, they aren't the kind of people. So in Russia's history, the pilgrims are like, oh, yay, capitalism saved us. It allowed us to have a great Thanksgiving. When in reality, <laughs> like we already said, they didn't even move away from the Commonwealth system until well after that first Thanksgiving. And secondly, they thanked God for everything. To them, everything was an act of God. Everything was an instrument of God. There was no reason to thank anything else. It, everything came from God. You can't, like, so to have, I mean, don't get me wrong. There, there are like some passages in the book where they talk about God, but like, it's really just, I'm telling you, it's not in there enough. It's just not. It's At least in the context of what motivated the pilgrims, there is a little bit of like, and we were founded on the Christian God and America has always had, you know, it comes from God. There's a paragraph in there basically that kind of uses the argument of like, how would you know what's right to do without the guidance of God? That squeezes in there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it just it just didn't. But to me, like it just didn't provide really the proper effect of. Yeah, no, this is sort of the the shallow interpretation of God, you know Christianity's role in the founding of America, just to fit your narrative that you know you should still everything should still be Christian now, essentially, um, without looking at the historical context of how it informed the motivations. Yeah, I'm tr- God. I'm trying to figure out where we should go next because there are so many. There's so many things we can rush, rush, rush to. (laughs) I want to go right back to uh, Rush Limbaugh, time paradox creator. Okay, okay, okay. creator. So so Rush Revere in the book, um, there is a point where he tell he basically um, at he mandates that the kids who he's time traveling with, Tommy and Freedom, adhere. To his doctrine of non-interference in with, when time traveling, because the kids want to feed some people who are starving to death. <laughs> and, and Holy shit! Like, I just realized this juxtaposition, Paris. Jesus. And he heaven. goes, he says, 
Oh, no, we can't change history. Unfortunately, we just have to watch. So it's like he's, you know, he's like, kids, we got to adhere, you know, to this this doctrine of non-interference, which is, you know, a common thing when you're dealing with time travel in in fiction. And um, yet, yet, (laughs) he's like, don't feed those starving people, because what if what if they grow up and they don't fuck the right person and don't produce the right offspring to, you know, I don't know, to fucking make Abraham Lincoln a hundred years, 200 years from that or whatever. So, so they don't, but then meanwhile, rush and the kids are like interacting with all of these people. It's not like they're just invisible. Expressly interacting (laughs) with the people. Like my dude. Offering no explanations for their (laughs) random disappearances into the present and coming back later. And most notably, Rush Revere. So, okay, Paris, this kind of like ha- it like moves at some times. He claims that he, okay, I need to start back in the classroom here, actually, just to okay, paint the proper okay. picture. Okay, all right. Rewind. So, substitute teacher walks into the history classroom and says, all right, kids, it's time to learn some history with me, your teacher, Rush Revere. I'm in a silly colonial outfit. Oh, I'm the fun teacher here. Also, there's a horse in your classroom. Anyway, forget about that. I'm going to put a movie on for everyone while I leave and fuck off and drink in the park. I mean, travel through time. I, I mean, um, I'll be back. I get like literally no explanation. He's just like, I'll, I'll, I'm leaving the room. And he pulls a projector screen down. You know, sets it up, and then he leaves with the time-traveling horse and the two children that are time-traveling with him. So he's like, you two come with me while we fuck off and the rest of the class watches a movie the whole time. So already we're starting with a very strange (laughs) premise. Oh, actually, put that aside for a second. Just put that in the in, oh, in, the, in the closet for a minute. Y- you and know we'll... what? I think it actually it's actually worse because I think the first time that he travels with them, they're like in detention after school, so it's literally just they're all alone, and he's like, "Come on, kids, get on my talking horse," and you're like, "Oh no, who who thought this was good mood setting? This is yeah awful. okay." Anyway, so they do this later on as well, and. So Rush the Bus says, I'm going to put a movie on, kids. I've pre-recorded it. And then they jump into the time portal. And Rush Revere's cell phone is the video camera that is live streaming through fucking time and space. <laughs> yeah. Yo, what carrier is that? Grade Can school I? <laughs> classroom projector that Rush Limbaugh figured out how to do the fucking AV connections for, for a time camera. No, that did not happen. Is wait, is that what the T stands for in T-Mobile? Is it Time Mobile? <laughs> Do I have the ability to record through time? <laughs> yes. Fuck, I gotta try okay. this. So even let's let's even put aside the time camera <laughs> that can stream. 4K video through the fucking quantum realm or some shit. I don't know what's going on over there. <laughs> but then, so Rush Rear has apparently on his lapel just pinned there to stream back to the present-day classroom, just showing this thing on his breast to every pilgrim and native that he walks by. No, 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 Chris. It's it's a button camera. He actually says that at one okay. point. That clears up a little bit, but still... Still not all con- of it! Mm-mm. It's, like, connected to his smartphone, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. In some fashion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, aside from that, the camera is picking up the feed 
of the two children that just left the room with Rush Revere. They are frequently in frame. Right. <laughs> and no one in the classroom is like, hey, why are Tommy and Freedom in the new substitute teacher's history video? And also, they're not here right now. Yeah, I... <laughs> Chris, I cannot explain that. They're like, I will accept for the sake of a children's book, talking time traveling horse. I'm not going to sit here and yuck it up. That's not supposed to work. That It's a children's book, whatever. Matt, we I read fucking fantasy novels all the time. If there was a talking time traveling horse in my book with knights and swords in it, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's fine. So I'm not going to fucking sit here and criticize that in a children's book. But at, there's so many other things that makes absolutely no sense for someone to be like, hold on a second here, uh, Mr. Revere, substitute teacher. I don't think it's okay for you to just leave the room with two students while the rest of us watch a movie that also those children are in. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's like with, with children's books or fantastical stuff, you either have to have a really good system or a very short list of fantastical things because otherwise it just gets unwieldy and yeah you're just caught up in like why would it be this way i gotta say though i actually do want to talk shit about the talking horse so <laughs> the talking horse i just i was waiting for a good explanation like a clever explanation for why the talking horse especially when it's revealed that the talking time traveling horse is actually was actually george washington's horse so he's not just a horse that's like from now. He he's like a George Washington horse. So I'm trying to figure out like how long has he been in the present day? How long do you live when you're flipping back and forth in time? And then secondly, the explanation offered for why he is a horse that talks and time travels is that he was struck by lightning. Yeah, good enough. Cut print. I mean, what's the, this? no, it's just the lamest thing. I mean, first of all, speaking English and time traveling, two very different abilities for a horse to suddenly have. <laughs> You're trying to tell me that a single fucking lightning strike just bequeathed the, both of these abilities to this horse? I just, come well, on, man. The Give me negatively something else. charged particles are the speech english talking and the positively charged <laughs> ones are the time travel ones don't ask me where the invisibility came from that's all oh, right sorry three he's also he also <laughs> can go invisible so i just would have much preferred um i don't know like i am an experiment horse yes like lab i, I came from a lab from the u.s government lab they were trying to i don't know send things through time and then they also wanted me to speak so like no, he should have been. He's like, we just experiment on this one horse with all of the Black Ops projects. Yes. It's he's... just we everything that we want to do, we do to this one horse. <laughs> and his name is Liberty. And, that's... and like periodically through the book, Liberty's eyes would just go blank and glaze over. And you'd have to like shake him out of it. Yeah. And Liberty has to like deal with the trauma of being <laughs> a fucking experiment horse for the government. Yeah, dude, that's such a better, a better explanation in my mind. <laughs> but anyway, I mean that's that's like a half. That's not a real criticism. That's just a, that's just a yuck yuck. But um, so let, let's all right. Let's also think again about how Rush and the kids just keep 
popping in and out of existence. And Chris, I know you said they didn't give any explanations. So he does give explanations. They're just very bad and obviously <laughs> false. <laughs> so. I was exploring. Yes, that's always his. Like, there's one time where, like, they they pop to the Mayflower and then they leave and they don't come back for, like, nine months. <laughs> and, and, and everyone is like, oh, where you been? And he's like, oh, yeah, below deck for nine months. I guess I haven't around the ship lately. Behind like, some no barrels. one's fucking seen Rush Revere in nine months on the one tiny <laughs> ship. I mean, ships are pretty big, don't get me wrong. But it was also legit. They made a point to say it was really cramped down there because it was for cargo holds and there wasn't a lot of places for people to be. It's where can you escape to for nine months? Yeah. Oh, bro, I, I was just in the in fucking engine room the whole time. Wait, there's no engine barrel. room. Fuck. <laughs> I was in a barrel. Um, so I can actually confirm the tininess of the Mayflower because I've been on the Mayflower 2, which is the replica, because I don't know. I think the original Mayflower fucking fell apart a long time ago. Everyone in Boston does that field trip, I think. Yeah. I mean, and I'm I'm from a place even closer to Plymouth, so you can yeah. imagine I've been there many times. So. I remember going to Plymouth Rock for a field trip. And they brought us up to Plymouth Rock, and it was, it's like it's a rock with like in the ground. There's like the big square cutout, and there's the rock. And I remember the teacher brought up, "Look, it's Plymouth Rock," and I was like, "It's just a boulder." Hey, so um, I can confirm the Mayflower very small. Since you just brought up the fucking rock, we're gonna talk about it. So, um, as somebody who grew up sort of near Plymouth Rock, I have a particular hatred for it that I think. Is on- <laughs> Um, go there every weekend and piss on it. It's just, just no. Um, I hate it because nothing about it is true. Yeah, that I'm pretty sure that wasn't the rock in there. I'm pretty sure, like even when I was in grade school, I was like, they just put a fucking rock in a hole. No. So the thing about like nothing about it is real. So Plymouth Rock is what it's just another one of these like American myths that that people tell, uh, and it has no basis in fact. So there's. There was never any mention of a rock or a boulder or anything uh, for any, from any firsthand sources <laughs> from the time. Uh, apparently, how it all went I down. They hoodwinked me. So apparently how it all went down is in like the 1740s, there was an elderly man whose grandparents had been original settlers in Plymouth. And I guess in the 1740s, they were going to like build a, pier or a bridge or something and it was going to go over the rock and this old guy like stands up in the town meeting and he's like you can't cover the rock that's where the pilgrims landed that's where my grandpappy landed and everyone's like okay tommy like whatever (laughs) but then it just took on a life of its own and so there's no (laughs) there's no historical documentation okay there's no reason to think that Paris. that rock had any no no me, no Paris. I am still going. <laughs> okay. So there's no reason that that rock had any significance. The date was carved into it like two three hundred years later or something in like the early twentieth century. Um, furthermore, the Pilgrims first landed in fucking P Town in Provincetown on the Cape. So if anything. They were going to remember that first landing because they only ended up in Plymouth because they were like trying to fucking sail to Virginia and then they got stuck in some shit because, I don't know, our coast is hard to navigate and they ended up in Plymouth. And like, also, if you think about it, a big gnarly boulder is not really where, 
like convenient to disembark onto <laughs> from a ship. None of it makes a lick of sense. And yet people have just fucking snuggled this rock. stupid rock to their. It's not even that big of a rock. Well, it isn't now. It used to be much larger, but it's been vandalized and broken okay. apart over the years. So. Paris, but okay. So what I just learned seconds ago is that I went on a fucking two-hour one-way bus trip <laughs> on a school field trip to look at a rock because of its historical significance, and that wasn't even fucking a historically significant rock? No. The only significance it has is uh, to further solidify... American except the myth of American exceptionalism. <laughs> it was just some guy's fucking don't pave over my house excuse. I took well, a two even, hour bus trip because <laughs> fucking yeah. Tommy from 1740s was like, no, not here. I'm going to make a stink about it. And fucking 300 years later, here comes little Chris looking at this rock and going, it's just a dumb fucking rock. It's not a real fucking rock. That No one landed here. I knew it. I was like 10 years old and I knew it back then. I could smell the bullshit on this rock. Yeah, you knew it. You had you had rock bullshit hypersense. Should have become a geologist, Chris. I'm vindicated, um. Paris. I feel so fucking vindicated. Because like later in life, I was like, you know, maybe you were kind of a little shit. You weren't appreciating the historical context. So thank you. Thank you, Paris. Ah, Chris. But cannot both things be true? Oh, shit. Could it have been a bullshit rock? And you were a little shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, shit. You're right. I can't um. whitewash my own history. <laughs> I have to look at it from all sides. So, sorry. And in all seriousness, um, I don't want to say that, like, there's, you know, we can't give credence to oral history. Like, duh, of course we can. Like, the written word isn't isn't the only thing we should care about. But it is quite suspicious that one man was the only one to have ever spoken about this by the time 1740-something rolled around. I mean, it's just very suspicious and... You know, typically when we when we give value to historical things, uh, it, they usually have a lot more corroboration around them, whether oral or written. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think Plymouth Rock is bullshit. I think if you do uh, want some, uh, you know, a nice old field trip, um, you should go to the Plymouth Patuxet uh, Museum. Oh, man. All right. So uh, what else do we have? We have a lot more stuff. I'm just trying to decide. How I wasn't about the ready. Treatment of native characters. Oh boy, yeah, this is the time. Um, so yeah, Chris, why don't you why don't you begin begin that section of the of the evening? Okay, my here's gonna set the tone here. So throughout the book, there's a couple of times where they are approached by someone native. The first few times they are approached was by Samoset, but it's just one guy walking along the forest, and the whole fucking town goes on alert. Prepared for an attack by one person walking through the woods. This is, of course, set off by Miles Standish, who, you know what? I could kind of believe that Miles Standish would put the whole town on alert over that, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Even though there is this later on in the book sense of like, and then the natives and the colonists became friends and helped each other. Throughout the whole entire rest of the book, they are preparing for attacks from the natives. Mm-hmm. So it's this very like, well, I guess you can help us with food and stuff, but don't come anywhere fucking near us or we'll, we'll be ready to murder you. Which, spoiler alert, that happened 
later in real life, they don't mention that in the book. There was a massacre committed by Miles Standish and some militiamen in about 1623 when they lured a bunch of native peoples to the colony and then stabbed them all to death in cold blood. They don't really go over that in this book. Oh, and then even better, Standish was such a fucking asshole that he actually put the the leader, I think his name was Watumet, Witu, ah, Wituwamat, sorry, Wituwamat, Wituwamat. He was Naponset. Uh, he put their leader's head on a pike and left it on like in front of his house or on top of his house until the head was bone. Um, and, you know, actually, coincidentally, uh, Boston, is it Boston University? I yeah, think, it's BU. Or- yeah, BU has a building called like Miles Standish Hall, and people were like, "Yeah, can we maybe not call it that?" So uh, there's a petition going around right now uh, to try to rename it. I believe what Tumet Hall. I, I think. signed that petition after I read this book and saw that that petition was going around. Very timely. Yeah, and and like FYI, you might be thinking. Oh, well, you know, Standish was the military leader. He had to protect people. Whatever. These natives probably had it coming. Nope. There was no actual evidence of a plot. Standish was just an asshole. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, he he quarreled with a lot of people uh, even then, even when this happened. Um, like, the current pastor was not happy. And actually wrote to Bradford, who who became the governor eventually, about how Standish shouldn't shouldn't be in charge anymore. He's too violent to the native people, you know, and um didn't live up to the pilgrim standards. So yeah, we have a very, very different <laughs> perception of Miles Standish now than even the pilgrims did at the time. And certainly very different than what this book paints. I mean, I think. I'm sure this is, you know, this is at the beginning kind of of their time together, but <coughs> it's, yeah, it's just a little irresponsible to kind of just say, yeah, Standish, real cool guy. Yeah. On this t- uh, topic of treatment of natives here, the second thing that I wanted to bring up was that similarly in how the book tries to have you believe both that everyone was friendly and nice to each other, but also they were totally prepared for native attack at any moment. There's also this same kind of double standard thing happening where very frequently the, the colonists will bring up, Oh, we have all this untamed unsettled (laughs) land before us. (coughs) Oh, it's all just cleared for us. Weird. Yes. Yet clearly there are native peoples there that you are interacting with. It is not unsettled. Yeah, and then they, it's weird because the book will be like, oh, wow, all this pre-cleared land. Definitely no one here. Wow, God must have cleared this land for us. And it's like, don't you think it's more likely that it was just these other people who you keep talking to and seeing? Like, don't you think it was maybe them? The people them that and, were here before you? Yeah, turns out it was Squanto's... A community that was ravaged by plague, unfortunately, and they all died. So that's why everything was like cleared and looked like a good place to build because people had lived there before. That's like, mentioned in recently. the book, by the way. The plague that went through there is mentioned there before, and 
Squanto, and I think it's Samoset actually that it was his people that were from that area. Or was um, it was Squanto. Um, okay, it was Squanto because Squanto was kidnapped and enslaved, was taken to Spain where. Uh, oh right, yes. Catholics were like, oh, we don't actually like slavery. What the fuck? Like, basically, some dude captured him and a bunch of others, tried to sell them in Spain, and Spain was like, uh, no thanks. And so some Catholic friars helped Squanto escape. Somehow, he ended up bouncing around all over the place. He was in Newfoundland. He was in uh, England. um, And then eventually made his way back to North America, which is just wild that he actually accomplished that. Because he comes back and meet and interacts with the pilgrims, and he's like, "Yeah, this is Deathland. This is bad land that is bad. <laughs> you guys cool. should." <laughs> so I'm going to help you guys live on the land as long as you're not mean to us. Oh shit, you stabbed I just us think, all. I just think it's funny that he was like, "Yeah, this is the graveyard of my family," and they're like, "We'll build here." And he's <laughs> like, "No, no, no. Oh, never mind." Um, so, uh, I guess, I don't know, even, like, Squanto's real story is kind of, um, also quite a bit different than I think people realize, you know, um, it's not like he was, you know, the book, of course, paints him as, like, the good, you know, noble native who shows them how to plant stuff and helps them translate, and it's just totally motivated by, you know... I don't know. He's like divinely sent to them or whatever. But like in reality, he was kind of in like a weird spot and was just trying to get some advantage for himself in a way. Because, um, you know, he was like captured, sold into slavery and then finally gets back, finds all of his people dead. So um, I forget. I think he was actually uh, a captive of Massasoit. But he was, you know, he spoke English fluently. So he was pretty valuable as an, you know, at this time. <sighs> I think he was like trying to, yeah, I think he was actually captured. He was like their prisoner, sort of. And he was trying to like get out of that situation, which is why he was being so cool with the colonists. Because he was like, oh, these people are don't know what the fuck's going on. I can hang with them. And, you know, it seems like they're okay. Um, at least from what I remember, I'm sorry if I'm wrong about that, but that is like my, my base memory on Squanto's deal. <laughs> um, Squanto's deal, the new game show. Well, I guess, I guess I just wanted to point out that it was, you know, it's more complicated. It just, just like how the, you know, it, their interactions with the colonists are more complicated. The native people as individuals were more complicated than his, than, you know, a lot of the American history likes to suggest. Um, so. It's time to play Squanto's deal. <laughs> you get a chance to be enslaved and be sent to Europe or come back to your plague ridden family graveyard. Oh. Squanto's deal. Oh. Or third option. Go hang out with these weirdos. Yeah, I'm going to take the weirdos. He was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the weirdos. I'm like, all right. Um, Thanks for playing. Squad does the deal. <laughs> anyway, moving on. I think we covered most of the extra native notes that are in here. Uh, no, actually, we forgot a really big one. So remember how we were talking about a character named Freedom? Yeah. So Freedom is um and nondescript Native American child with, you know, 
uh, I guess stereotypically so, with shiny, straight, long black hair and I guess that's the only thing he really says about her physical characteristics. But she always has a feather clipped into her hair. Um, she <sighs> can. She is the only one who can see Liberty the horse when he is invisible. She can also communicate telepathically with him and other animals. And furthermore, she can make other animals do her bidding. <sighs> this again. Uh, yep, it's time for another zero round days of since magical natives. <laughs> yeah, we, it has been zero days since a native person has been deemed magical. All right, everyone. Oh, we have, this is still part of Squanto's deal, and it really sucks every single time. All these doors <laughs> just open to fucking hatefulness and stereotyping. Oh man, yeah. This is why. Who even makes? makes this game parker brothers don't don't publish i was imagining more of as a televised thing (laughs) you reduced it to the board game not reduced board games are more fun than tv game shows i would say anyway yeah it's been zero days since we've been affected by um the magical native stereotype and i gotta say it fucking sucks you know it's like why can't what you know why can't freedom just be a student who happens to be indigenous but can't you know can't talk to animals maybe she's really good at repairing cell phones i don't know like this fucking constant idea that anyone with indigenous ancestry is somehow trapped in the past and they have to commune with nature it's like come on people it's just not real it's not reality um it just sucks to keep seeing it again and again and again um they also I mean, and this is this is like another point that, you know, of course, indigenous people are not a monolith. You know, Native Americans are not a monolith. But I know some Native Americans are okay with identifying as Indians or American Indians. But most of the time, they like to be called Native people or Native Americans or yeah, indigenous when we Americans. Keep saying that, it's, be- you know, it's not because that's what the book says. No, the book just calls them indians all the time which just doesn't it doesn't feel great and again this is like you know a differing the you know perspectives on this differ but i think the majority opinion is that like that's not a great word to use because that's not you know wasn't a self uh, assigned descriptor and it was also incorrect because of course because they're not from you know, fucking india you're not yeah. in india you even knew you weren't in india because you called it america but still i know, I know. Um, so anyway, that's kind of, oh, sorry. I should specify that it's not the pilgrims using this word. It's, it's Rush yes. Limbaugh and the kids yes. and the kids like in the modern day. That's why it's kind of like, eh, maybe not the best choice, you know? Um, anyway, uh, there's not, I don't know. They also can't decide whether they want to spell Samoset with an A Samoset or Samoset. <laughs> And that was. I think just this like is another a, symptom of one. Paris brain just here, Paris, one. where you like you have to like. I do. The, I'm sorry. When I'm so deep into a book like this, that stuff just glances off me. I can't let it affect me because there's so much worse stuff <laughs> you to have think to survive. about. So speaking of so much more stuff to think about, so why wasn't Rush Revere um, hanged for witchcraft? We already brought up the whole cell phone camera thing, and he like he's trying to. I discreetly brought out my smartphone to take pictures, but I don't know, man. It's like pretty. You weren't that cavalier. Like 
you were pretty nonchalant about it the whole time. Yeah, I just don't think that there's any way that he wouldn't have been murdered for witchcraft because not only is the smartphone a problem, he also at some point tells someone that he's a time traveler from the future. And I was like, dude. Oh, yeah. What's this about this whole non-interference uh, thing here? Oh, but you're just going to tell him. Oh, no, we can't help that starving child. But I, f I feel cool when I tell people I'm a time traveler. So I'm going to let that one slide. Yeah. Not to mention, there's also just the tacit implication of witchcraft when he is on the Mayflower and then not for months at a time, and then reappears on the Mayflower. I mean... No, they were totally cool with that. He was just hiding in the, under the poop deck. That's all. Yeah, he was just, just in a barrel. Um, So I think... But like, uh, Paris, imagine... I just want you to think about a situation where you are time traveling in the past and you have a smartphone on you. I would hide that thing up inside my body so far that <laughs> no one would ever have a fucking chance of seeing that because if you for a second get caught with that thing, imagine trying to explain for the first fucking second what you are currently holding. Oh, it's this thing with the screen. Oh, you don't know what a screen is. Oh, it's like it has a camera. Ah, oh, shit, that doesn't work either. It's like a phone. That, uh, mm, uh. uh. It's like a yeah. typewriter. Mm, no, not really. So for for me, like this book really should have been about two chapters long and it would have ended with Rush Revere's crackling flesh and screams <laughs> as he is burned at the stake because he would not have survived this long in 1620, uh, you know, with all of his time travel and smartphones and weird, like modernized concepts of things. Not to mention, they don't mention this, but, you know... <laughs> the way people talk now is not quite the same as how people spoke in 1620. It's quite different, I would actually say. So it's, you know, that alone would kind of paint you as sort of weird. Um, I, I just don't... <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I in summary, R Rush Revere um, should have burned at the stake. <clears throat> You want to just go through some odds and ends at this point, Paris? Because I feel like that's what we got left here. Yeah. Um. Oh, remember when um William Bradford and Miles Standish offered to make Rush Limbaugh the governor of their colony? <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that part. <laughs> because at this point, the it's just historical fanfiction. Self jerk off that you could throw in there. Yeah, it's just historical fanfiction with Rush oh, Limbaugh. Thank that's you all this for is. giving us the idea of capitalism, Rush Revere. I guess we should make you governor and king of the colony. No, see, I am just, and I will not accept this, and I will go back to my present day with toilets and running water, you see. Uh, Chris, uh, so, actually, we're going to go back to the beginning of the book. Right at the very, towards the beginning, um, there's an explanation of, like, how Rush Revere and Liberty the Talking Horse met. And it explains that Rush Revere is walking out of the iced tea factory where he's a mascot and somehow bumps into the time-traveling horse or whatever because the horse sees him in the colonial outfit and is like, oh, that's familiar, you know. Uh, um, but, you know, I was like, oh, of course, haha, iced tea factory, like the tea party, whatever. I was like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing there. Chris, Chris, did you, did you know that iced tea was real? Yes, I did, Paris. And I didn't want, I wanted you to find it out for yourself. Did you know I, that he and his wife had an iced tea 
operation called Two If by T. Oh, okay. I didn't know that part. Also, when you said ice tea operation, I thought surgical for a second. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, what happened there? Can I get this surgery if this well, just like replaces my blood with iced tea? Well, I mean, you were saying you needed to find somewhere to hide the smartphone in like a cavity. <laughs> so I think you get like an iced tea bladder and then the phone slides in there and it's protected. Yeah. I see. Yeah, you're actually you're 100 right. Can we get that lady from the last book with with her like biology knowledge to do that to me? I don't want to be like a whole bag of organs. Just like have one extra organ bag that I can just kind of put stuff in. Just an organ pocket. That's just my butthole, right? I should. It's just, that's what this is. Yeah, it's a, it's a flesh pouch. I just want a second butthole where poop doesn't come out. Back to the ice. <laughs> I'm so leave that this in. book. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to ruthlessly get through the rest of these points in this episode. So I just can't fucking believe that Rush Limbaugh and his wife were like, hey, we got to try to sell our iced tea, though, to these middle school kids. We got to make sure it's in there. Oh, oh. oh man. Gotta respect the oh. hustle, right? Just constantly looking for. A no, I don't. Also, I went to the website the and his... will be disrespected. Uh, yeah, I went to his website and the Rush Limbaugh store is closed, probably because he's dead. But like, I don't know, oh. you you would think that um, the rest of his family would want to still reap the Rush books, right? So it's kind he of He had the surprising. keys to the tea stash, Paris. You don't There's somewhere <laughs> out there is Rush Limbaugh's tea treasure trove. <laughs> There's just a factory that's locked up and no one's ever going to be able to get in there. I'm going to find it and rebrand it so I don't have to worry about drinking Rush Limbaugh tea because I do like iced tea. <laughs> Me too. Um, there's this... Oh, Chris, you just have... Uh, so when <laughs> you said some really good... Good ones. So they they go back in time and, you know, of course, we got to talk about, oh, how weird the food was. Because, um, you know, got to be fucking, got to fetishize everything, got to be weird about everything. And they, you know, Rush takes Tommy and Freedom back in time and and they decide that um, there's no food because none of the three food groups exist. Yes. The way it's put is that Rush Review is trying to impress upon these children exactly how different the food landscape is. So he says, no McDonald's, no Taco Bell, no Kentucky Fried Chicken, nothing. There's no And it's food. supposed to instill horror upon the children. Oh, no, there's no food anywhere? I don't know. How do they even do anything if there's not a McDonald's or a Taco Bell or a Kentucky Fried Chicken? How do they yeah. live? Yeah, and they and they're supposed to feel very lucky because they have access to the modern three food fast groups. Food. The, the three, three food groups, groups of McDonald's, Taco Bell, Kentucky Fried Chicken. So wait, so do you Those think are it's your three a, choices? Do you think it's a pyramid or is it just more of a Venn diagram or like? It's a pyramid. So you want to have what's like the base? A, the KFC? base is McDonald's for sure. Ah, uh, okay. Because it's ubiquitous right. and it's everywhere. Then on top is Kentucky Fried Chicken because fried chicken is great tasting and finger looking good. And Taco Bell's on top because that's the vegetarian option and you shouldn't have that many vegetables if you're an American. That's okay. I'm going to agree with you because <laughs> we all know how much I love Also, it's the not bell. truly American because taco. <laughs> so if you're going in order of like freedom level. Yeah, you're it's right. McDonald's, you're right. Kentucky it's Fried Chicken. You're and right. Talk about the freedom. The freedom pyramid is <laughs> the freedom definitely. Food pyramid. <laughs> the freedom food. 
Remember, kids, get your get your seventy percent. Six McDonald's servings every day. <laughs> yeah, wait. What are the servings? Wait, wait. What's what's considered a serving? Is it like I have to have a whole hamburger, or can I have like a sweet and sour sauce? Can I have a hash brown? It's the, it's one full meal, Paris. It's oh. <laughs> you get three <laughs> servings because you get. The burger, the fries, and the drink. So that like one meal is three servings of your required McDonald's. four to six McDonald's servings. You should be getting at least a breast and a thigh. Uh, okay, every at least, day. At least two, two chicken, and then one bell. Yeah, just like you know, a cup for just for a treat. You want to have like one cheesy roll up, like a gordita, <laughs> maybe if you're going extra on it. Yeah. Okay. I like that you walked right by my breast and thigh once a day joke there without a fucking blink. <laughs> no, I'm you, sorry. Paris. We were talking about chicken. I'm sorry. <laughs> I appreciate that about you, Paris. <laughs> For once, my brain did not did not go elsewhere. All right, all right, folks. Make sure you're getting your getting your McDonald's and KFC and the Bell. Um, speaking of food. It's it's kind of weird because they're talking about how they're starving. But then I think it's actually when Samoset shows up. They're like, oh, yes, have a meal. And they hand him a plate of roasted duck pudding, a biscuit, butter and cheese. And I was like, are they starving? I I, I was just a they cut the, the duck up specifically for Samoset and Rush. Because Rush Revere came strolling back in after his exploring session for the last year or so. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I was, you know, and and I'm part of me is rationalizing it in the whole like, you know, you give your guests the best you have sort of thing. And but but there's like further questions because, you know, the, the pilgrims didn't they weren't able to bring all that much shit with them. Like we've already talked about how. It's kind of packed tight the Mayflower was with a fucking 120 people and whatever else they had. And we know for sure that they did not bring horses or cows, like no large livestock. The only animals that we for sure know that the pilgrims brought over with them were um, a spaniel and a mastiff. So two dogs, that's all we got. But the assumption is that they must have brought like chickens and pigs and goats but but there's, yeah, but nothing bigger than that. So I guess they could have had some, like, hard cheese because hard cheese lasts a long time. But how long could butter possibly last? And then I started thinking, did they make goat butter? I, I don't know, because, like, I know that they brought, like, they assume that they probably brought butter with them. But I'm like, how fucking long does butter last? I just can't get that out of <laughs> my head. I'm like, it's so much more than Rush Limbaugh did, Paris. <laughs> How long, you know what, how long, how long does (laughs) last? I mean, because this is before pasteurization. So, I, hmm, um, not pasteurized. Did you just Google how long does butter last and it was like fucking forever? Let's go. (laughs) No, it said, it said one to three months. But then I said, how long does butter last not pasteurized? Um, it only lasts. 10 days in the refrigerator. So I don't know. I'm still like, how did they have butter? Someone explained to me. How did the pilgrims bring butter? Because there was like, I remember I was, some of the reading I did, it was like, oh shit, they bought a ton of butter, but then they had to sell a bunch of it before they left to like pay for other stuff. So 
They did have some butter on the Mayflower, and presumably it did make its way over, but, like, they were on that ship for fucking, I don't know, 10, 10 weeks? I think? Longer yeah, than that? Yeah, a couple months. A couple months. Wait, I'm now remembering that I said nine months earlier. I meant nine weeks. That's still too long to be missing on a ship. My apologies. Yes. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I... All right, butter people out there the butter people the butter people are out there what paris um does where, where, where are the butter people coming from i just need to know i the need al- the alternate time paradox they're the time police they're slippery enough to get through the time dimensions and police <laughs> the fucking paradox that rush revere caused i'm getting down to the bottom of it this episode paris oh i don't know i'm really curious about this does anyone out there know in in the 1600s, before pasteurization and before refrigeration, how long would butter last? I need to know. I need to know. Also, could you make butter people out of it? And do they control <laughs> the time stream? Also, also a question we need to know. We need to answer. Um, you know what, Chris? You know what we haven't done? We haven't actually read any passages from this That's true, Paris. fucking I th- literary yeah. monstrosity. I think that might be so, a nice way to wrap up the meat of this episode. Yeah, I think we've got two sections that I would love to read. Uh, one is about this whole Rush Limbaugh creates a capitalism time loop. Uh, and that is on page 128. So, Chris, let's let's head over to page 128. Let's okay. rush Rush, rush to page 128. And away from any context that history could provide. <laughs> yes, away. All right, so this is sort of a lengthy passage, but I'll do my best to get through it with, with you, with all of you. I believe in you. I heard you mention a common house. What is that? I asked. William pointed to the frame on the ground and said, This will be the common house. It is one of the first buildings. It belongs to everyone. We've agreed to set aside our want of personal property or personal gain and instead create a community where the houses and buildings and profits belong to everyone. We are trying to create a fair and equal society. I thought of the pilgrims on the Mainflower. These were tough, strong, and independent people. I thought of them as self-reliant and ambitious. People who came to America to start a new life, build their own homes, work for themselves, and be free people. But what William Bradford was explaining to me seemed like the opposite. Certainly, it would be tempting to live in a society where everything is shared and all your choices are made from you. But is that freedom? With some courage, I decided to meddle with the time stream and forever create a time... (laughs) (laughs) No, with some courage, I asked William, you say you're trying to create a fair and equal society. Do you think your people will find joy and happiness with this kind of common control? Real non-interfering here, Rush. William sighed and said, It will be a test for sure. At first, the common house seemed very attractive. This kind of control should guarantee our prosperity and success. But recently, I'm beginning to doubt whether everyone will work their hardest on something that is not their own, William said. All these men are working on the same project, said Miles. All week, they've used axes and saws to fell trees and transport them to this site. The trunks will be woven together with branches and twigs and then cemented with clay and so forth. Some men do little and some men do a lot. When this house is finished, who deserves the benefit and blessing of having this roof over their head? I pondered the question. Was there a right answer? Certainly no one should be left out in the cold, but at the same time, it didn't seem fair for everyone to be rewarded equally when people who were able to work chose not to. I finally said, you're right. I think this will be a test, 
but I know you are both wise enough to figure it out. A fine answer, Rush Revere said William, smiling. Are you sure you don't want to be governor? <laughs> Not me. You'll make a fine governor, I said to William. If you'll excuse me, I said, I'm going to track down Tommy and his friend and make sure they're okay. So that's like part one. That, I think that's, I, I think, yeah, that's, that's good. I, I would like to read the section about what's the point of doing anything unless you can be better than everyone else. <laughs> oh, so, <good>. um, <clears throat> oh, this is like another, there's so many moments in this book where I'm like, someone would have been like, Witch! Like so many of my notes are just witch in all caps because he just slips up and says something like he's talking to William Bradford like alone in his house and he goes, uh, yeah, I've learned much and hope to be able to share it someday with my history class. And it's like history class. What? What? We don't have a school yet. <laughs> what are you be talking about? What? Hi- what's a history class? Like it's like it's witch. What? Um, so this is Rush talking to William Bradford. It's great to see the settlement growing. Yes, it's growing, said William, but not as fast as it could. Why is that? I asked. Do you not have enough trees or supplies to build houses? Well, no, not exactly. I can't remember if I told you while we were on the boat or not, but we have a contract with our sponsors in England, the ones who helped us pay for this voyage. The contract says that everything we produce or harvest, like food, furs, furniture, etc., must go into a common store, and each member of the community is entitled to one common share. Eventually, we hope to make enough to pay back our sponsors in England, but I'm finding it difficult to get our people to work. I pondered his comment and said, So you're saying that everything that is produced, all the profits, go into, let's say, a box, and then everyone gets one equal share of what's in the box, regardless of how much work they do or how much they produce? Correct, said William. And some people figure that it doesn't matter how much they work because they're still going to get an equal share of what's in the box. I can't really blame them. I mean, what is the incentive to work hard if you know the other person will get the same reward doing little to no work? That doesn't seem very fair, I said. I thought about Tommy's football coach and the question he asked all the boys after practice. He said, What would you think if two teams playing against each other get the same amount of points, regardless of how many touchdowns they make? The boys booed the coach, and Tommy asked, What's the purpose of playing if nobody can win? (laughs) The coach replied, Exactly! So get out there this Saturday and play hard! Play to win! There are a few of you who think you don't have to play hard to win a championship. Some of you think you deserve part of the trophy, even though you're not giving your best effort. I'm here to tell you that if I see slackers out there, I'm cutting you from the team. And if you don't think that's fair, then you don't understand what it means to be a champion. Then the coach <laughs> led them in the chant, play to win, play to win, play oh to win. I then, <laughs> I then, I'm trying not to vomit as I'm reading this. I then thought of the pilgrims. They initially tried to make everyone winners, but soon realized the attempt was failing because not everyone wanted to work hard enough to be champions. The truth is, oh when we try to make everyone a winner, no one's a winner. Oh, yeah. Such a deep <laughs> fucking nuanced take on things there. All right. First of all, 
there's plenty of reasons to play if there's no one keeping track of the winner, like socialization, exercise, just going outdoors to have a good time. I've kicked a ball around plenty of times without keeping the score. I had a good time because I was with my friends doing something. That's not to say a little competitive spirit ain't bad. I think, you know, I fine, keep score during games and everything, especially when you're compete literally like it's a sports league. Sure, fine. But not every football match out there has to be scored. And also using this as a metaphor for sharing food and goods is terrible because it doesn't have to be a game. It doesn't have to be a competition. Yeah, like a football game is a football game. Society doesn't have to be a football game. (laughs) Like football game trying not to starve to death. Two different (laughs) things. It's very, very much not the same. By the way, this is the section where he convinces Bradford to yes. go to capitalism. By mentioning uh, football, by the way, he brings up the football thing, and William Bradford's like, I should like this football. No, instead of being like, <laughs> what the fuck, you witch motherfucker? Yeah. That's how well, the pilgrims then, talked, by the way. They, oh, very, by they the, lived in oh. Boston, so you know they were very crazy. <laughs> well, no, the pilgrims didn't. The Puritans did. Um but uh, there's there's actually there's hey, the there's fucking a fucking witch. <laughs> there's actually a witch moment pretty soon when Tommy <laughs> all of a moment. sudden yeah he starts talking about salsa and Bradford's like salsa and I was like witch. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> How many ingredients of salsa would William Bradford have even known about? Um, probably knew about tomatoes, right? Mm, tomatoes come from North America, so uh, oh, he but I have think they, recently have discovered tomatoes, if at all. No, I think tomatoes came in the uh 15th century, so <sighs> am I right about that? Were tomatoes the 15th century? When did <laughs> tomatoes? <laughs> When did tomatoes come to America? <laughs> no, 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 no. Come to Europe. To come to Europe. Um, <laughs> tomatoes are from America. Uh, everyone thinks about tomatoes as Italian, but they're not. They're from no. fucking North America. Well, they're from Amer- the Americas, excuse me. Um, so The most patriotic uh, fruit there is then. Yeah. I guess, okay, sorry. I guess tomatoes came to Europe in the 16th century. So yes, at this point, they would have known about tomatoes, but... A lot of people were not into tomatoes for, like, a variety of reasons. So, one, tomatoes were first ornamental. Uh, there, there's, like, some videos you can watch on YouTube. But for a while, people thought tomatoes were poisonous, but they're not. There was some confusion um, due to their acidity, making lead plates leach out lead and kill you. They were like, oh, the tomatoes are evil. And then it took a long time before they were like, oh, the plates were evil. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh yeah. I mean, I was going to say, it's like, it's not so incorrect, right? It is like the interaction of the tomato and the plate that is murdering you. So, like, the tomato yes. is kind of to blame. <laughs> the tomato is a catalyst for murder, but you know, it's an accomplice. The tomato's an accomplice here. Plate um, tomato I- murder squad. I mean, <laughs> again, I'm. This is like a hazy memory from some YouTube. Oh my god, this has gotta be did. like some fucking like a plot and some low rent cop procedural out there. It's like <laughs> there was a murder at the historical society thing. Oh, they, he right. put a tomato on a plate with lead in it, and then they ate from the plate, and that performer died. It was revenge well, I think you have to- because the <laughs> butter people came once and for all to undo the time. <laughs> through the time, through the capitalism <laughs> time loop. Oh, 
It's all coming together on this episode. <laughs> it's all coming together. NCIS. Uh, Plymouth. CIS. NCIS, I said. Oh, I thought you just said CIS, and I was like, Chris, what are you... Crime investigation scene. Yes. <laughs> oh. Uh, okay. All right, Paris, well, I think we can... You got anything we, else to bring up here? Uh, no, I think we can rush, rush, rush away from any confrontation of harsh truths. Yes, <laughs> let's do that. And right into... <laughs> oh, no, it's the patron list. Watch out. Can we fix it? Yeah. Read a history textbook instead. That's how you yeah. fix it. I uh, I would actually suggest um, uh, a, a great textbook. Uh, or I don't know. I, didn't, I mean, I don't know if it's great. I thought it had a lot of helpful information in it. It's called... The Myths That Made America, An Introduction to American Studies. So this talks about the Pilgrims, the Puritans, Pocahontas, and John Smith. Like, goes over kind of all that classic shit that you learn about. And it explains how all of it was wrong um, using, you know, <clears throat> firsthand, firsthand accounts, which is always what you should be doing with history. Um yeah, and like like Chris said earlier, I mean, yeah, I know this book is for kids, but it doesn't mean you have to avoid hard subjects like colonialism and racism and genocide and you know fighting and and all this stuff. You can the you can have people. both he- the butter people. <laughs> Shh. Um, Tommy, you can- I need you to sit down. We have to talk. <laughs> you know the stuff in the fridge. We got to talk about, it's time to talk about the butters and the buns. <laughs> um, but sorry. anyway, sorry. My, my point here is that no matter the audience, you can have both things. A lot of people think, or rather a lot of people want history to be like one way or the other, right? Um, and especially with children, like they always want it to be the most sanitized. They want to gloss over anything, quote unquote, bad. But in reality, history is not really an either or. It's really more of an and situation. Like Chris was just saying, um, most of history is like both things are true or both things you think you want to choose between are kind of true. You know, for example, sure. The country that we currently live in, the United States of America, did have its, you know, its kind of foundational times among these European pilgrims who were escaping religious persecution. And they also murdered, mistreated, and ultimately committed genocide against indigenous people. Like, these things are both true. <laughs> you don't need, you can't tell a historical tale or an accurate one without talking about both things or all things. Um, and that being said, there are moments in this book and, and too many others like this book where there are just straight up lies to, to make, you know, most people who are reading it, i.e. white Americans, you know, feel zero discomfort. This is the part where I say the very start of the book starts with, we live in the greatest country that ever, ex-. that's the first line. Yeah. Yeah. American exceptionalism tr- through and through. Um, you know, and don't and don't mistake us here. We're not saying you can't feel patriotic or enjoy living in America. But you have to you can't you can't just 
put your little blinders on and just think that America is all there is. The world, I don't know if you've noticed, the world's a very large planet with billions of people on it that live in vastly different places. And to think that, you know, America is the best of them is just short-sighted, right? Um, you know, I, I just it's also think naive. It's, it's just naive. Yeah, it's really naive and a little silly, honestly. Um, and, and, you know, why is it a competition? Why do we have to be like, oh, there are, there is a country that is the best. Like maybe there are 20 countries that are all kind of equivalently good in different ways. Maybe none of them are the best. Maybe all of them are the best for certain people, you know? Um, Paris, what's the point of being a country if I can't win? <laughs> what's the point of being alive if I can't win, Chris? <laughs> I want to win at life. Um, anyway, like the founding of, you know, this kind of white Western version of America was a grim time. Frankly, still a grim time 400 years mm-hmm. later. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and again, like uh, depicting native people and, and honestly, even pilgrims as kind of simple uh, one dimensional caricatures that only serve your modern fucking propaganda needs. It's just an irresponsible thing to put in a book, especially for children. So yeah. Yeah, we can fix it. (laughs) All right. It's time to thank the people that brought us this wonderful trip through time. It's the patrons. Well, thank you, Martin, uh, for recommending this. Actually, (laughs) I forgot to say, this is a fucking series. This is the first mm-hmm. <laughs> of several of these these monstrosities. Um, thank you, Martin. This was, I think, this is actually uh, a good choice for us to read because mm-hmm. it allowed me to be a huge nerd and reread a bunch of stuff I had sent around from college and you know reminisce about New England history, which, as New Englanders, I think we're we're want to do so. Allowed me to uncover the truth about the butter people. <laughs> Chris, if you say butter people one more time, we're going to be on the list. That's true. I got to shut up about it now. Okay, no more. No more. Oh, but um, thank you to the rest of our patrons. Thank you to Dari, Greg, Veronica, Will, D, Jared, Lynn, Sinya, Yakub, Bobby Blackcat, Lycoris, Elliot, Kieran, Jay, Scott, Luchek, CTAP1, Miri, Yanka, David, Julius, Anya, Anonymous, Patricia, Tommy Wiseau, ha ha, and Donnie. Thank you all for supporting the Thank show. Thank you very much. And uh, get ready. We Next episode is also a Patron's Choice episode from... Um, from actually, we'll we'll, uh, we'll I guess we'll tell them on the episode. But next episode is also a patron's choice, and we are going to be going in a wildly different direction. So mm-hmm. <laughs> sure rush, rush, rushing away from this bullshit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, if you also want to help support the show, you of course could become a patron to access bonus content such as videos of us, mystery science theater three thousand style commentary, outtakes, and other random audio visual weirdness. Uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. And watch some stuff, leave a comment, like a video. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Goodreads if you are on those platforms. Um, Otherwise, you can contact us via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads, Patreon, or 
through the Gmail. You can send an email to terriblebookclub at gmail.com. Um, most importantly, though, we'd just like it if you shared the show on social media, told some people to listen to it, or um, wrote us a review. Those are always fun, and if you yeah. write us a review, we will read it on a future episode. Thank you very much, patrons and listeners. Hope you're having a good start to your autumn. I am excited for a colder weather. Um, and we have the schedules packed for the rest of the year. I think Paris. I think we we're, we know the path we will take through the rest of it. Yeah, I'm actually having trouble. Um, yeah, we have too many things to read. Uh, the schedule is pretty backed up. So um, if you want us to read something, uh, become a high level patron, and it will jump to the front of the line. Uh, but otherwise, you will be waiting uh, years, uh, in yes. some cases, literally, not a joke. Uh, I will say that us. there is a special episode of Terrible Book Club coming sometime soon, I believe. Uh, oh, Chris, is it the history of, of the, the people I cannot name? No. <laughs> I, I, I'm sitting here going, fuck, what is Chris it's talking about? TBC Boys Club. Oh yeah. Um and I guess I guess we didn't have an episode at the time, but I was recently on an episode of uh Antiques Freaks, which was really fun. It was just me and D and we did an episode or rather D educated me um about uranium glass, which I actually love. It's one of my favorite kinds of antiques. Um and Chris is going to be doing some fun stuff with Ken. Uh I forget what y'all are doing. Um I'll leave it a secret. I'm just going to say that there's going to be at some time in the future, a boys club, boys only, no girls allowed, terrible book club episode. Don't come into our pillow for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So um, if you want to learn, if you want to hear me be really confused by and ask inane questions about uranium glass, that episode of Antiques Freaks came out, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. So um, go find it. It's a good time. Yeah, rush, rush, rush to that other podcast. Rush, rush, rushing to the butter people. <laughs> All right, Barris. I'll see you next time. Bye. Oh, good night. I think my favorite like weirdo false thing that he peddled was that Eyjafjallajökull in Iceland. Remember that volcano? Mm-hmm. Uh, it erupted like right after the Affordable Care Act was signed into law. And he thought that the volcano erupted because Obama getting the Affordable Care Act through Congress was the end times. Yeah, solid brain on that one. Solid. Making all the connections there. He's seeing all. He's finally going to get to the bottom and finally uncover the butter people. What they are. (laughs) That's everyone thinks it's magma and lava that come out of the volcano, Chris. But we know it's you. But have you ever tasted the stuff that comes out of volcanoes, Paris? (laughs) No, because they tell you it's too hot to eat. That's they tell lie. you to stay away. That's why there's fencing. You gotta go beyond the fencing. You gotta get right in there. They tell you that 
Pom- everyone in Pompeii died from the ash and the heat and the lava. No, no. that was a big butter people cover up. <laughs> it was the butter people cover up. That's that's why you just see their the the outline of their bodies because they were butter. They <laughs> they were buttered to death. <laughs> oh wow. day what what do you get against the night chris what did the night ever do to you yeah and you know what the night is it's a time of day (laughs) no they won't no they won't they don't they don't know they don't know